good. It's great to be here this morning. Um, it is always an honor and a privilege to have the opportunity to stand behind this pulpit. God, I just thank you. God, for your work and for the work of the cross. Yet your word would be preached in purity and in truth. And that it would be salvation to the non-believer. And that it would be sanctification to those that know you as Lord. And may your word and they have, have the impact that only it can do. And that I would open my mouth. And that I would preach your word. And that I would exalt Christ. Amen. As Pastor Ben asked me a few weeks ago to speak this week, and we were going to pause the Apostles' Creed series, as you'll figure out here soon. Um, and, you know, the... Uh, the, the dreaded, it's not dreaded, but the moment of pressure ensues when he says that I need you to just pick whatever the Lord has on your heart. Um, because if you know anything about me, I really like having a piece of scripture, a piece of text to anchor onto and to work off of, and that's probably because I'm immature in some way, I'm sure. But the Lord had been working on my heart for about the last year, this idea of evangelism, uh, which clearly is, there's no question that we need to do that as believers. And as I, as I got closer and closer, he, we would talk about it in staff meeting and he would say, all right, so what you thinking? And I just, the only, I, that's the only word I had, evangelism. Um, and it was really just that shallow at that moment um, in my life. And as I began to prepare and I began to think this Wednesday morning, some of you may know all our, our staff meets every Wednesday morning, and we spend a time in, in prayer in here on Wednesday mornings, uh, just seeking the Lord and obviously being obedient to the Lord's call on us to pray. And I was sitting there, and I said, God, I just don't, I'm just not settled out on what needs to happen here. And he led me to, to a section of text, uh, two of them actually, so we're going to go through two different stories today. And he really just broke me as I sat there on that front row, and it's just like a gut punch. Have you ever had that happen? The Lord just convicts your heart. And I say, God, you're speaking to me. This is not just a universal thing. You're speaking to my heart. And I wrestled with the title over and over again as I sat even with Pastor Ben on Friday and we were talking about it. I said, I still don't have the title that I like. And uh, he said, you'll get it. And I did yesterday morning as I was finished and I've titled it The Heart of Evangelism. The Heart of Evangelism. Because I believe there's a great need for evangelism in the church today. And there always has been. This is nothing new. When we look at the reality of evangelism or even the practical idea, it's the spreading of the gospel of the Lord Jesus through our words and through our witness, right? That's a pretty basic example of what we would know that to be. But to take it a little further, the Greek word for it is euangelion, and it literally means gospeline. So there's something very specific about evangelism that I think we need to settle in our hearts as true believers. 
That yes, we do walk and our witness matters and we show people the way to do things and we act the right way and we say the right things. But, but the reality of the truth and the purity of evangelism and what it means to be gospeling is we have to share the message of the gospel. We have to speak to that reality. The universal need for evangelism has not changed with our respect to our calling as believers. But I do believe that the American church has shrunk from its responsibility. So I ask you, why do we struggle in the area of evangelism? And if I sat down with each one of you, there would be many reasons why you say it's tough. Many reasons why it's difficult. This one study I read from the Borna Group, I believe, points to some of it. A study was done titled, Almost Half of Practicing Christian Millennials Say Evangelism is Wrong. And the points in this study were that sharing the gospel today is made harder than at any time in recent memory by an overall cultural resistance to conversation that highlights people's differences. Three out of five Christian millennials believe that people today are more likely than in the past to take offense if they share their faith. While out of the baby boomers, the greatest generation of all, one out of five feel that way. Society today also casts a negative light on the proselytization that many older Christians do not fully appreciate. And the millennial and Gen X generations over the boomers and elders are more likely to believe that disagreement means judgment. That's just one area. I also believe that a culture in the church before of these church growth models and the prosperity doctrine is what has caused the millennial and the Gen X generation to think the way in which they do. They've been given the wrong answer. I stand there right in the middle of that age range. And it's sobering. And now while I believe that these statistics are true, I don't believe we need to go out and fix the millennial problem. That's but a symptom of what has happened. If the church functions the way in which the Lord designed the church, that problem will be taken care of. As I told you earlier, I've been struggling, not struggling, I've been convicted in this area for the last year. I'm trying to wrap my mind around what are we to do? What do I believe about this? What, what does the Lord have for his church? And I've thought, how do we do it? Do we need better programs? Do we need to relegate to cultural trends and to marketing strategies? Of course, we know the answer to that is no, Right? We have some amazing ministries here at Living Word Church. As many of you saw last week, we had over 20 ministries highlighted in the foyer, and every single one of those ministries is about the advancement of the gospel. So the Lord said real clear, no, that's not the issue. His people, you people, love the Lord. But I said, I still need more, God. I need something settled in my heart. And he was thankful, and he was, and I was thankful, and he was faithful to send me to the text to see what does the Bible say about this? What, is, what have we seen ultimately walked out in this area of evangelism? Because we don't want to follow just postmodern church trends. 
We want to know what does God have for us. So we're going to look at two elements that I believe are necessary for effective, biblically-based evangelism. As I was talking about this this week with my, my wife, and she's really good at grounding me in certain areas, because she knows that I have a tendency to be a bit abstract and sometimes last specificity in certain areas. So I thought this morning while I was writing this, I would make a note that I would be abstractly specific. And I even drew me a smiley face on my paper. But it brings us to our first point. That the Lord Jesus is our example when we look to evangelism. You know, Jesus probably would have failed most contemporary tactics for evangelism. How I many you know that to be true? Yeah? We're going to look at the story of the rich young ruler, and I'm going to show you one example of this. So let's look at the text, which is where I'm the most comfortable. And we're going to read Matthew 19, 16 through 22, and then we'll begin to break it down. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life and keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, honor your mother and father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possession. Right? Many of us have heard that story. Let's look at some things here. First of all, I mean, Jesus just gets it teed up for him, right? It's like the perfect candidate for salvation. Wouldn't you think? He says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? How many of you would love for somebody to walk up to you and say, what do I need to do to get saved? Isn't that just like, isn't that like the dream when it comes to evangelism? Because is there not so much struggle always in, what do I say? How do I start this conversation? How do I talk about it? Well, Jesus gets the perfect question and seemingly chases the guy away. So, it begs the question, what's the problem with the question that the rich young ruler asked? Why did Jesus respond in that way? Well, before I answer that, let's look at what Jesus said. In verse 17, and he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Right? So he's pretty clear. He answers this question for him. And he essentially says, but if you were to enter life and keep the commandments perfectly with regards to the law, that would be how you would do it. Now, we know that that's not actually possible, but what Jesus is trying to highlight here is that, first of all, there is no, no one is good, firstly, and you cannot perfectly fulfill the law, therefore, that's an impossibility as well, right? We know the law was there, as it says in Galatians 3, it was a tutor for us, right? It was a schoolmaster. It was meant to teach us and show us and compare us to the holiness of God, but it's not anything you and I could actually attain in its perfection. That's why the Lord had to do what he had to do at the cross. But then Jesus 
continues and he gives them five of the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments, right? Now, once again, he's not trying to tell him if you do these things, you're going to be get saved. He's trying to compare and contrast the reality that he can't do it. Because we know that it's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone is how we get saved. But he's, but he's, he's working him here because he's going to do something a little bit later. But the rich young ruler responds, even though Jesus, I feel, gave him a pretty clear answer. And he says in his haughtiness, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? What do I still lack? So he asks another question. So the first one is, is how do I get salvation? The second one is, I, don't, I, I did all those things. Now what, Jesus? You obviously are forgetting something. But then Jesus... Next response forces him back to his heart or what he's trying to do. And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus exposes something here. Well, and I don't think he even realizes. But first of all, he tells him to sell everything. And to, and to give to others. So we see clearly when he said he, have, he has kept the commandments that the Lord just said, we clearly see that he hasn't. Because why? He cares about himself more than anything else in that moment. So, God, so Jesus exposes his heart. And then he lacked the true faith and the unwillingness to surrender all to God. So now we answer the question of what was the problem with the rich young ruler's initial question and the second one there. And a caution for us, I believe, as true believers. The rich young ruler had a felt need for salvation. He had a desire for it, for the idea of it. Because really, when you think about it, who doesn't want to go to heaven? And I guess there could be a few but who wants to live in a life of eternal damnation and pain and suffering, right? We don't like it when the air condition breaks. So it was a felt need for salvation. Not one that was at the depth of the reality of what salvation actually entails. So I think about it. You and I or any of us are in an evangelistic moment. And someone walks up to us and says, what must I do to gain salvation? What's our response? And I'll go to the wrong side. Some of you may do it right. Let's hurry up and pray this sinner's prayer. Right? Possibly. But what happens if we've not presented the gospel to that person? What if we've not held up the reality of their sinfulness in light of the holiness of God? What if it's only a felt need, a fire insurance policy, as we say sometimes, rather than a true surrender of all to the Lord? What happens then? Here's the unfortunate truth that we see and we have seen is we create an opportunity for a false conversion, and that's dangerous. And you say, well, Pastor Matt, what do you mean? 
Why would I not do that? Why would I not speak that to him? I'm not saying you wouldn't speak that at all, but have you held high the holiness of God in the reality of sinfulness? And you say, man, that's a, that's a hard conversation. It sure is. It sure is. Because church, and I'm going to go a little bit deeper, false conversion essentially amounts to false membership inside of the church, which ultimately breeds dysfunction in the body. It's sobering. You know why? Because as believers, we love the non-believer with all of our heart. And despite their wretchedness, we need them to come to the saving faith of the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can operate in the purity of the church and the advancement of the gospel. Consider all of the indictments against the church today, the scandal that takes place across our country, the thwarting of the gospel because there are people in there that should not be. And for those that are actually believers, we'll deal with them in a little bit later. But church, conversion, and it's a work that only the Lord can do. But the part that our hand plays in it has to be pure. We have to present the gospel. Practically, and you can write this down to help yourself out in this situation. And I'm going to break through and I'm going to give the elements of what the gospel looks like when you are gospeling. When we are euangelion, the non-believer. When we are speaking the truth of what Christ has done. Firstly, we always hold up high the fact that God is creator, he's holy, and he is apart from sin. We learned in our series last week about God being the maker of heaven and earth. He is outside of his creation in relation to it. He has created it. He is the creator. We are the creation. Once you settle in your heart his holiness and that he cannot function within the place of sin, we've got to look at ourselves. That the reality that humanity is sinful. The prophet says that our heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know how bad it actually is? Just because you've not acted on it doesn't mean it's not capable. That's the reality of humanity. And that person in that moment needs to feel the weight of who they are outside of Christ. Because if not, what are they being saved from? But then you say, well, we have a problem, Pastor Matt. What do I do with it then? Well, then we give them the answer. And the answer is that Jesus Christ is the Savior to those that name him as Lord. And that's not just oration of words. When you call Jesus Lord, that means he has every element of your life. It's not just something you yell out in a foxhole. It's a belief that's deep in your heart that says, Christ, I give it to you all. But we have yet another problem. Where do we come in? And this is where we make the connection to the non-believer. And we say, once you get the reality of these first three points, the next thing is for you to have belief in your heart. 
And now the Lord Jesus that died on the cross, dead, buried, and resurrected, now bridges the gap between sinful, depraved man and holy God. That's where it is. You have now effectively gospeled the non-believer. And that's what Jesus did. He was getting at the heart of the rich young ruler that you need to come to terms with your sinfulness in order to have any place in my kingdom. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He walked away because why? He had great possession. You may be here today. Might be your first time here. And you don't know the Lord. And my prayer is, is that in, the, in what was just spoken, as the gospel was just preached, as you heard, that you would make a decision in your heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. That that belief would become real inside of you. You may be here today, and you may have been here for years, and you're not actually saved. And my heart is that in this moment, you would accept the free gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, may we always be a body of believers that loves well the non-believer. It welcomes into the fellowship that we have here, but not to make them feel good, not to satisfy the felt need of salvation, but that they would feel the weight of their sin and they would make a decision for Christ. May we never, ever, ever at Living Word Church be comfortable in our sin. May we never be comfortable. The church is not a place to be comfortable. The, cha- the church is a place to exalt the name of Christ in these walls so that we can do it outside of these doors. If you're comfortable, pray that the Lord would reveal why you're comfortable, particularly in your area of sin. When we don't have true believers that make up the body of Christ, the ecclesia, it means the called out ones. That's a very specific thing. The church is not just its four walls. It's a people that has been called by the Lord Jesus Christ. We lack purity. We lack the strength. We lack the courage, as Pastor Ben said, to go out there and reach a lost and a dying world. Because we lack purity. Any of you know that when they test the purity of metal, there's this process by which they find out how pure it is. They put heat to it and they put fire to it. And whatever it is, it reveals the reality of the church. And I think through times like we're going through right now, as many things have happened in the past and what we're also going to see in the future, when the church is pressed in upon, a test of the purity of it comes out. The true believer cannot do anything other than run for the Lord Jesus. While others bow out, while others say, ah, it's a little too tough, not going to go there. And it brings me to my second point. And the second point, an element of evangelism that the church must be pure. Why must the church be pure, we ask? It's because when the church is pure, it functions just as the Lord has designed, and we will evangelize. There's no option. We will do so. Evangelism cannot operate as an independent agent inside of the church. Nor can it be something that's done by some and not others. Yes, I agree that certain ministries may focus there more than others. But the work of evangelism is for every one of us. 
as true believers. It cannot be separated. It is an integral part of being a true believer. You know, as we study week after week after week the truths of Scripture, as we look at the doctrines of our faith, as we look at why we believe what we believe, and we look at the reality that it's all about Christ and ultimately who we are in Christ, this pastor Ben's faithful to preach through the text week in and week out, evangelism will be an outflow of that reality in our life. And it should be. And it needs to be. And are we ever at a place where we have reached capacity and can need to stop evangelizing? Did the early church reach capacity? What is capacity? Well, Phase 3 tells us 75% of our building. But that has nothing to do with the church, remember? Because the church is not a building. It's a people. I love what Paul says here in Romans 1, 15 and 16. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek There's some cool things Paul does right here with the words that he uses. In our book, it looks the same. But that first word there for gospel is, one of them is euangelion, and one is euangelizo. And don't, don't get caught up in that too much, but they are different words. So gospel we know is about, that never changes. That's the good news. That's the reality that I just walked through on Jesus Christ and the Lord God and sin and man and how that's all connected. But the second time he uses it, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, speaks to the specificity of the gospel working in Paul's life as a believer. So not only does he have the power of the gospel, it's happened to him. And he can walk in that. And because of that, he does ultimately walk in it. But it brings us back to that point that I had from number two. The purity of the church is at stake when there is unrepentant and rampant sin in the church. Do we have a pure church? I believe so. I pray so. We don't all know each other. But I know one thing to be true. It is something that we can never let off of. Nothing that we can ever let off of. And for this last part here, I want to take us to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts, the end of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5. And this is a little bit different story than you probably would have expected here. Because for those of you who know it, it's pretty, it's pretty extreme. I'm going to read through the text real quick to get us, get us launched here. It's a little long, so hang in there. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back from yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all of them. 
And the young man rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold that land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young man came into her and they found the dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And this is the word of the Lord. So let's get some context. Pretty serious story, right? So first of all, we know that the new church was being built in Acts chapter 2. It's thriving, right? Peter preaches the gospel and over 3,000 people get saved. Wow. Now if you notice in his in the part of the message there where he preaches it in Acts 2, 36 to 38, one of the things he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow. I think that satisfies the felt need for salvation? He just gave it to him, right? You crucified him. But yet 3,000 of them come to faith. Why? Because the Lord saved them. And they responded with belief. We go a little bit further after that. Another 5,000 plus more are added in Acts chapter 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So it's even more when you consider women and children. But what's interesting is, is persecution at the time is on the rise, right? We're starting to see the church really get pressed in on. People going to jail. People losing their life. But yet it says that the believers had everything in common prior to that. They were caring one for another. They were taking care of each other, submitting themselves to prayer. But then right before this story, it's like God hits the pause button on the advancement of the church. And he says, hold on a second. I've got to deal with something. And we read that, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now from everything we believe and looking at the text, we believe that they were believers. First of all, it's in the context of talking to believers, talking to the church. Peter says that he knew the Holy Spirit. But I think the best picture we see is that I believe the Lord disciplined them in the most extreme way. How many of you think death is quite a big punishment? The holiness of the church matters. We see in 2 Peter 3.11, it says, Since all these things thus have been dissolved, he's talking about the end of the earth, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So we see God's hand come upon the church in a profound way. He takes the life of Ananias and Sapphira. And you say, wow, that's not very loving. It's very judgmental. And the answer would be yes, both. Why? Because God can do that. He has the attributes of love and the attributes of judgment all at the same time. The ability to do both of those things at once for the furtherance of his kingdom. But particularly in this area of hypocrisy, about them lying about what they did, he dealt with it in a strong way. Remember that part we talked about in the gospel where God is holy and he's apart from sin? He doesn't exist. He cannot exist in the presence of it. And he made a real 
stark contrast for us here of the reality of it. I remember the first time I read that story was years ago, probably about 10 years ago. Not the first time I read it, but the first time I read it and thought, whoa, what's going on here? And a dear friend of mine at the time I was working with, you may know him, Stephen Crothers, and he and I were having a little Bible study, and I called him. I said, man, so you read that story? He said, yeah. I said, what is going on? I said, that's serious. I mean, they just lied. And his response to me was, in all of his wisdom, he said, they sinned against God. It's serious. And I said, man, fair enough. I'm going to try to stay away from that one. But look at the response, because this is important. We don't have a whole lot of time left. In verse 11, and it says, And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. A great fear. So first of all, this is the first usage of the actual word church in Acts. Ecclesia. So he's speaking specifically to the church and to those outside of the church. Because it says, and to all who heard. And it now came into focus the seriousness of sin inside of the church. Death was on the table as one of the consequences. 1 John 5.16 says, As if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. And to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. And I do not say that one should pray for that. And he's saying, don't pray for that. But it's a reality. How it works and all the details, I have no idea. But we see it clearly. Scripture is clear that sin has to be dealt with inside of the church. It starts with us. That's what it says there in 1 Peter 4.17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Church, it starts with us. It starts with us. But then God also charges us as believers to deal with sin as well, ourselves, to deal with it. God does, clearly. But he's given the church a mechanism by which to do so. It's called church church discipline. How many of you heard of church discipline? Matthew 18, 15 through 20 tells us all about it. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, You've gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two or, or you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So many of you have heard that text in a different light. It's about getting kicked out the church when two or three gather. That's the reality. And we'll talk about that whole line. Actually, today we're going we're gonna to do one. No, I'm joking. Um, but it's a real thing, church. Like you say, whoa, people do that? Absolutely. There are churches in America today that do that. I read one church that does this on average. They looked across the history of their church, and on average, this is going to blow your mind, on average, 
one person removed from the church in this fashion every three months. And there's a lot of people at that church. Every week, knocking down the doors to get kicked out. But why does that matter? Because the purity of the church matters. If we're going to evangelize effectively, it's going to be because it's out of the purity of the church. We've never done anything like that here. Not the public part, for sure. Lord willing, I pray we do one day. I really do. Not because I want to see somebody fail. Because I want to see the holiness of God lifted high. Because we want to reach a lost and dying world in a way that we've never done before. Because look, it'd be better to be disciplined by the church or by your brother and sister than to be damned to hell. Is it not? So we pick back up. God hit the pause button, kills a couple people, and says, my church is ready to advance in the full power. In verse 12, and it says, now, now that we got this taken care of, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. And catch this word, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So those non-believers, the ones that were um, just kind of hanging around, said, okay, you stay over there, and I'll stay over here, right? Y'all can do your thing, I'll do my thing. But then look, but there's another one. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So in one motion, we got people heading for the hills. And in the other one, we got people diving headlong into the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite that. Despite that. Because that was a place, Solomon's portico was a popular place for believers to gather. It's actually where Jesus even preached some of his messages from. So it was a common area for them to gather and hear those things. But here they come. We see that stark contrast of none and more than ever. Right? It's kind of interesting to see those two sides, right? And there wasn't any bandwagon fans in the early church. They were jumping off that bandwagon. Unless you've come to grips with the reality of your sinfulness. Unless you know that it's the, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you can say, like Peter said, Lord, where would I go? What else would I do? And if you're here today as a true believer, that's what you say in your heart. Where else would I go? It's but God. Where else would we go? 1 John 3, 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Church, if you're not practicing righteousness, you're practicing unrighteousness. And practicing means we're just getting better, one way or another. If it's the sanctification of the saints, it's righteousness. Impurity. Church, what do you listen to? What do you watch at your house? What are the conversations that you have with other people? Are you practicing Righteousness, the purity of the church matters if the purity of our evangelism evangelism is going to have impact. They work hand in hand. 
As I wrap this up, I want to go through the two necessities for evangelizing in summation here. One, that true believers must speak the reality of the gospel. We have to be about gospeling. Romans 10, 14 through 15 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And that word good news translates to gospel. We have to share the gospel. It's specific. It's a specific call for us. In Acts 20, Paul's speaking there to the Ephesian elders. He says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. It's going to happen through relationships. It's going to happen through you reaching out into your world and your workplace. Who's the one person right now that you have that you're looking to share the gospel with? Because it's going to be a moment of time that's going to take to develop relationship and to talk and discuss. Because another thing in our culture today is this idea of just evangelism is going door to door. Maybe the Lord calls you to an element of that. But evangelism is when you speak the specificity of the gospel to the heart of the sinner. It might take you a year. It might take you a lifetime. But be specific in the call. We've got a wall out here and a thing called the go-tell wall. And it says on there, it's encouraging gospel conversations. And the whole precept of that thing there is that you would get a ping pong ball and you would write down the name of someone that you were specifically gospeling and you would put it in there as a sign of the work that the Lord is doing outside of these four walls and bringing people in to the fellowship of believers. I would encourage you, check it out. Take part in it. Champion it. But secondly, the collective unity of a pure body of true believers is a necessity for effective evangelism. John 17, 21 says, And that they may all be one, just as you. This is Jesus praying to the Father. Father, are in me, and I in you, and that they also may be in us. So what? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity of true believers. 2 Timothy 4, verse 5 says, And as for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, doing the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It's not just for certain people to evangelize. It's for all of us as true believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the beauty of it is, is when someone names the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we then get the direct connection and opportunity to disciple them for the Lord. Evangelism and discipleship are locked together, just like every other thing is for us. It's our call. It's what the Lord has brought us to. Many of you may be here today. I say not many of you. There may be some of you here today. When I spoke earlier about the reality of the gospel, and made a call for you to make a decision for the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you did. And if you did, and, you don't, and now you're like, what do I do now? Where do I go with this? Well, one thing we always do, and Pastor Ben mentions this 
pretty regularly is we want to give you some books to help you further understand what does it mean when we say, what is the gospel? And this book will break down in great detail those four things that I mentioned. And then how do I grow as a Christian? But you know, books are nice, and this is really cool. But we want to do something even further. We're going to have one of our members meet you out there by the, by the welcome desk next to the next step sign. And they're going to answer all of your questions. They're going to explain to you, and they're going to show you what it means to show yourself against the holiness of God. And what decision you've really just made. And then they're going to follow up with you. And they're going to call you. And they're going to pray for you. They might invite you out to coffee. Because why? Because we care deeply about your walk with the Lord. For the rest of us here that are believers, faithfully walking with the Lord, loving with all of our heart and our soul, I'd like for you to stand up. All of you, stand up. And I want us to declare one with another, speaking to the reality of unity and the pureness of a body of believers, and commit to one another that we would walk in purity in every area of our life. That we would deal with sin quickly, not only personally, but one with another. And that through that, we would evangelize effectively because of what the Lord has done in our heart. God, we come before you. God, we humbly come before you. God, needing you to do a work, God, that only you can do. God, firstly, to save those that do not know you, God. God, bring in a harvest of people into the fellowship of true believers. But God, for us that stand here, that have named you as our Lord and our Savior, God, help us to be courageous. God, to walk in unity. God, to deal quickly with sin. And God, to evangelize more effectively than we ever have, not because of our efforts, but God, because of what you've done in our heart. God, we lift up this time to you. God, giving you all the glory. And we worship the name of the one true God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I love you. I love you. Have a good week.